Gucci ain't did shit to y'all. Y'all can say whatever y'all want to say. They racist, whatever. I don't want to hear that shit. They ain't did shit to y'all. We've been in Gucci for about an hour. Right? And we in Gucci in the VIP. We've been in Gucci for like two hours. Right? Since we came in here, having nobody came and showed us no courtesy, no amenities, no nothing. Period. Not even a drink of water. Still haven't seen a manager yet. Since I'm talking to you right now, a manager still hasn't popped out of Gucci. Welcome to part two of House of Gucci. In part one, I covered the founding of Gucci by Guccio Gucci and the pass off to his sons. Well, mainly just one son, Aldo Gucci. Be sure to listen to that episode before listening to this one. The movie titled House of Gucci was released last year and it received a lot of buzz and grossed $156.7 million at the box office. And the movie was created with a $75 million budget. Despite a lot of campaigning, it received just one Oscar nomination for Best Hair and Makeup Styling. The movie starred Lady Gaga, Adam Driver, Jared Leto, Al Pacino, and Jeremy Irons. Jack Huston and Salma Hayek also starred in the movie, and I wanted to point out that Salma Hayek is married to Francois Henry Pinot. Pinot is the chairman and CEO of Caring. Caring is a multinational company that specializes in luxury goods and owns Gucci. You might think that the Gucci brand would have steered clear of being associated with the movie, but that doesn't appear to be the case at all, seeing as how the film was given access to the Gucci archives for costuming, and Jared Leto had or still has some sort of partnership with Gucci, and Gucci also addressed a lot of the stars of the movie for their press run and premieres. Let me know if you want me to host another Twitter space by tweeting or commenting on any of the most fashionable crime social media platforms. Thank you so much to everyone that joined the last one where we discussed inventing Anna. If I host another one, I will probably wait until after March Madness is over, so expect it to be sometime in April. And I'll give you guys a heads up in advance. If you aren't following Most Fashionable Crime on Twitter, make sure to do so and join the discussion. For this episode, I'm focusing on the book I read slash listened to that the film is based on. The House of Gucci, a sensational story of murder, madness, glamour, and greed, written by Sarah Gay Forden, which I listened to for free via Hoopla. And I also purchased the book, and I will add a link to it in the notes. In this episode, I am focusing on Maurizio Gucci and Patrizia Reggiani. Keep in mind, I am not talking about Patricia Gucci from last week's episode. Before I start, I want to make a couple of notes. One, if I mispronounce any names, I apologize. Two, a lot of the dates in the Gucci store are inconsistent depending on your source. I think this might be due to the fact that there's so much mess involved and a lot of people try to save face. Welcome to Most Fashionable Crime, a fashion-related true crime podcast hosted by me, Taryn. Each episode has a theme and the theme of this season is house. Make sure to sign up for the newsletter, subscribe to the YouTube channel and follow the podcast on Twitter at Most Fashionable and Instagram, Facebook and TikTok at Most Fashionable Crime if you want to stay on trend. There's also a discussion group on Facebook and a Reddit community, which are both linked in the notes. Thank you so much to everyone that supports this podcast. You have helped me upgrade my equipment and I would say the audio sounds a lot better than last season. So again, thank you so much for that. If you would like to support too, there's a link in the notes, but you can still support Most Fashionable Crime for free by sharing this podcast. Leave it a five-star rating and or a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and now Spotify. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. Subscribe to the YouTube channel and listen engaged with Most Fashionable Crime on social media. While you're listening right now, go ahead and share that you are to your Instagram story. Uh, uh, uh.
for a couple of weeks now, I've been asking people what fashion brand they think is the most well-known. And I'm so surprised at the fact that not a lot of people have said Gucci. Gucci is everywhere from the clothes, shoes, belts, fragrances, and lipstick. As always, Last episode, I left off part one talking about Aldo Gucci's infidelity and his love child, Patricia Gucci, who was having some legal troubles of her own. I also mentioned how I thought that Aldo played a larger part in the downfall of Gucci, which I will explain more in this episode. Aldo had a brother named Rodolfo. Rodolfo was the middle child of the six children and he was born on July 19th, 1912. I mentioned in the last episode that he was too young to work in the shop with his older siblings. When he became older, he decided to not work for the family businesses and instead became an actor. At 17 years old, he was discovered by a director and was cast in his first film. Later in that same year of 1929, he was cast in Rails, which launched his career. Rodolfo chose to go by the stage name Mauricio Dancora. To prevent confusion, I will continue to refer to him by his given name of Rodolfo. It appears that following his dream worked out for him as he appeared in more than 40 films from his start in 1929 until 1946. In the midst of his acting career, he met, fell in love, and married Sandra Ravel. Sandra Ravel was an Italian film actress from Milan, Italy. The future husband and wife met while they were on the set of the 1933 film Together in the Dark. Rodolfo and Sandra married in 1944, and four years later on September 26th, they had a son, Maurizio who was clearly named after Rodolfo's stage name. Rodolfo was with his brothers Vasco and Aldo when they flew to New York City to open the first Gucci store in the United States in late 1952. A couple of weeks after their opening, their father and the founder of Gucci passed away on the second day of 1953. Rodolfo decided to leave acting completely and go back to working for the family business in 1953, where he was situated in Milan, if you recall from part one. Unfortunately, Sandra passed away from cancer the next year in 1954. The business was split between the three brothers and their sister, Grimalda, was iced out despite her husband saving the business from bankruptcy in 1924 because Gucho, their father, decided that no woman would ever have any control of the company and he passed that on to his sons. As you may remember, Bosco was managing the factory in Florence, Rodolfo ran the store in Milan, and Aldo traveled all the time in efforts to expand the business overseas. Rodolfo had a major hand in the design of their products, the Gucci handbags and accompanying hardware. I read in the House of Gucci that he was the one that designed the 18 karat gold class for the crocodile handbags. Aldo's oldest, Paolo, also had a neck for design and worked for his uncle Vasco in the Florence factory. While Aldo drove the business and came up with a majority of the ideas, the brothers still had to reach an agreement and every two to three weeks, the brothers convened in Florence. Rodolfo worked to create more notable designs for Gucci. One in particular went into production in 1966. That was the Flora Silk Scarf. A scarf may seem minor, but it can really add a nice glamorous touch to a look. The story behind the scarf is pretty interesting and I want to share it. In 1966, Princess Grace of Monaco, formerly known simply as Grace Kelly when she was an American actress, arrived at the Gucci store in Milan. Rodolfo greeted her and gave her a tour of the store, and at the end of the tour, he decided to give her one of their products. But she hesitated at first and then decided she would take a scarf. At this point, Gucci produced small scarves that were not suitable in Rodolfo's opinion for the princess. He asked her what she had in mind, and she said, how about one with flowers on it? 
Little did she know, Rodolfo, with the help of Vittorio Alcanero, an Italian artist, were in the development process of a scarf. He told her this and promised her that she would be the first to receive it once they were finished. For the time being, he gifted her a bamboo-handled Gucci bag and sent her on her way. Once Rodolfo, Vittorio, and a silk printer by the name of Florio were finished, Rodolfo hand-delivered the scarf to the princess. Princess Grace was not unknown to fashion, seen as the Hermes Kelly bag was renamed after her decades after its first release. There was a lot of family drama over fighting for who had what shares of the company, who had control of the company, and so on. I'm going to try to skip as fast as I can to the most thrilling part of the story, which is about Maurizio Gucci and Patrizia Reggiani and some key things that were left out of the film. In 1966, Mauricio was 18 years old. So what was he up to? He worked in the Milan store after school and on weekends growing up. Rodolfo was very strict with Mauricio and kept him on a tight leash and budget even as a teenager. In the summers, instead of vacationing, he was flown to New York City to work for his uncle Aldo. As you can see, Mauricio was being groomed by his father and uncle to take over the family business in the future because Aldo's sons were seen as insufficient. Mauricio was a student at the Milan Catholic University where he studied law. At some point in his college career, Mauricio's father, Rodolfo, sat him down to tell him to be cautious of women that want to trap him because of his name, fame, and wealth. With the last episode and this episode, we know a lot about Mauricio's family, but I haven't talked about Patrizia. Patrizia was born on December 2nd, 1948 in Bignola, Italy, to an unknown father and a woman by the name of Silvana Barbieri. Patrizia grew up poor, but when she was 12 years old, her mother married a wealthy businessman with a transportation company by the name of Ferdinando Reggiani, and he went on to adopt Patrizia. After this break, I will tell you about the beginning of Maurizio's and Patrizia's romance. <laughs> In 1970, Mauricio and Patricia met at a debutante party for Victoria Orlando on December 23rd, when they were both around 22 years of age. Patricia was wearing a bright red dress just like in the movie. Mauricio was mesmerized by her and thought she resembled Elizabeth Taylor. After the party, they began to double date with another couple. This is different from what the movie shows as the start of their relationship. Rodolfo was still being straight despite Mauricio being an adult, and it took him a while to tell his father about his girlfriend, Patricia. Rodolfo did some digging of his own and decided that Patricia did not meet his standards. It can basically be summed up to slut-shaming Patricia and harping on Patricia's lack thereof of a pedigree and her lack of knowledge as to who her biological father was. Rodolfo thought Patricia was a gold-digging social climber. Despite the family's disapproval, the young romance continued. I read in the book that Patricia broke off an engagement to continue her relationship with Mauricio. All the fuss about this relationship might seem like whatever, but no. Mauricio choosing to continue his relationship with Patricia and disobey his father, despite being grown, caused a huge rift within the Gucci family. Mauricio refused to break off the relationship, so his father Rodolfo threw him out and disinherited him. Patricia's mother and her adoptive father took Mauricio into their home and he spent his days working for the Reggiani trucking business, and at night, he continued his studies. Flash forward two years later, on October 28, 1972, the couple married at the Chiesa de Santa Maria de la Pace. The bride's side was packed with guests, and Mauricio only had a professor and a few friends from school on his side. His uncle Vasco, the one that oversaw the Gucci factories, did send a silver vase. Mauricio's own father tried to get the cardinal to stop the wedding, so while it is kind of shocking to see that a supposedly close-knit family was not in attendance, 
you'll see that the heads of the family take everything that isn't in their favor as disrespect. This didn't set well for Patricia. You could say for various reasons, depending on how you look at it. Her adoptive father had a son, so it doesn't appear that she and Mauricio would have taken over the family's trucking business. That leaves Gucci, which Mauricio was no longer affiliated with. Maybe Patricia didn't want to be broke. Maybe she was a social climber. Maybe it was a combination of sorts. Either way, she was in contact with Mauricio's uncle Otto and this led to the beginning of the repair of Mauricio's relationship with his father. It's true, money cannot uh, buy happiness, this for sure. But anyway, it's better, to, it's better, much better to have money than not to have. It's better to uh, cry in Rolls Royce than to be happy in on a bicycle. <laughs> that's, that's for sure. Rodolfo informed Mauricio that Aldo wanted Mauricio and Patricia to move to New York City to help him out with the family business. Aldo had been looking for an heir of sorts. He didn't believe his own three grown sons were up to the task and definitely not his nine-year-old secret love child daughter. The newlyweds left for the United States and eventually about a year into the move, they settled into a Manhattan penthouse gifted to them by Rodolfo. Not bad at all, especially seen as Rodolfo gifted them with even more real estate. A second apartment, this one in Olympic Tower, a farm in Connecticut, a duplex penthouse in Milan, and land in Acapulco. Patricia really lived it up in New York City. She became a socialite. You could find her wearing the latest designer fashions at events and parties. She apparently even became friends with Jackie Onassis Kennedy. She did keep focus on building a family, and in 1976, their first child was born. A daughter named after Mauricio's late mother, Alessandra. Five years later, in 1981, their second child was born, a daughter named Allegra. In 1982, to celebrate his second child's birth, Mauricio bought this really expensive, more than 200-foot boat called the Creole that many people believed was cursed. Patricia somehow convinced Mauricio to allow her to bring a psychic on board to exercise the bad spirits. For Gucci, the 1970s were all about growth and expansion. They opened stores in Chicago, Philadelphia, San Francisco, and even Tokyo. Aldo was hesitant at first, but he made use of the fact that the brand had a devout Japanese clientele. The largest presence of Gucci still remained in New York City. The framework of Gucci when it came to power and positions did undergo restructuring. Bosco passed away in 1974. He had one-third stake in the company, and it was passed down to his widow. Luckily for Aldo and Rodolfo, their brother's widow accepted their offer to pay for her shares in order to keep the business in the family. Technically, their brother's widow is still a part of their family, but she was a woman, so that was not going to fly with them, I would assume. And honestly, who wants to deal with all of their mess? With the brothers each having 50% ownership, Aldo decided to split 10% of his ownership with his three sons, giving them each 3.3%. On the other side, Rodolfo was still beefing with Mauricio. It doesn't seem like their beef truly ended ever, but more so when Alessandro was born. Despite Aldo thinking his sons wouldn't amount to much, he teamed up with them to go against his brother Rodolfo. They felt that Rodolfo didn't contribute as much as Aldo to the business and was undeserving of a 50% share. In 1975, they set up a cheaper line of accessories under Gucci perfumes in which they each held a 20% share, totaling to 80% ownership. Messy, messy. Again, if you want to hear the whole story, I recommend reading the book. The movie is a good start, though. The 1980s started off with even more family drama. Paolo, Aldo's most creative son, decided to start his business without telling his father or uncle. Aldo did not take well to that at all, and he and Rodolfo fired Paolo. 
Not only that, Aldo sued his son and threatened any supplier that worked with him. Paolo was infuriated as well as devastated, I'm sure. The ball of family and business drama just kept rolling. Despite the tough relationship between Rodolfo and Mauricio, they still had a lot of love for each other, and in 1982, Mauricio and his family moved to Milan, and their seven-year reign in New York City was over. Rodolfo's health was declining, but it was initially kept a secret. He was battling prostate cancer. In the time Mauricio was gone, a lot of new Italian designers were bubbling up. You may recognize the names of Gianni Versace and Giorgio Armani. A big part of why Mauricio was sent back to Milan was to help Otto's dream of producing a successful pret-a-porter or a ready-to-wear line of clothes. Of course, Paolo worked towards this in the previous decade and did see some success, but nothing seemed to have been truly actualized that made a splash in the business. And of course, by this time, Paolo was no longer a part of Gucci. Patricia, a lover of designer clothes, was a huge supporter of Gucci ready-to-wear, and they all knew they had to introduce this product line in order to compete and stay relevant. Eventually, Patricia did get her hands into the business after she convinced her husband to let her design a line of jewelry. The line was expensive and tacky, according to some people, and didn't achieve much success. On May 14, 1983, Rodolfo passed away. His death really shook up the family. Mauricio was saddened, of course, but he also felt as if a weight of sorts had been lifted off of him, seeing as his father was so strict with him, even when he became a married man with children. Rodolfo left Mauricio with a pretty nice inheritance. The inheritance included $20 million in Swiss bank accounts, an estate in St. Moritz, luxury apartments in Milan and New York, and the biggest thing that caused a lot of drama in the family was the 50% share in Gucci. In total at this time, this was all worth $230 million. With the shares passed down to Mauricio, this meant that he held the majority stake in the company because if you remembered, Aldo gave each of his sons 3.3% of the company. Nobody was surprised that Mauricio was now the owner of half of the company. The issue was that he avoided paying inheritance taxes of $8.5 million. In order for this to have happened, Rodolfo would have had to sign over his shares of the company before he died, and no one believed that was the truth. The rest of the family and other people within the business believed the documents were forged. This didn't take precedence at the time because the heat was on Aldo. Dominic DeSole, a lawyer specializing in tax law, took on Gucci as a client in 1980 and became more involved with the company as time went on. Mauricio started to make more decisions and assert his dominance when it came to the company, and Aldo, of course, was none too pleased. Paolo, still feeling the burn of his father, decided to report his father to the Internal Revenue Service. He submitted documents to the IRS showing that his father had committed tax evasion for years. Mauricio and Paolo later linked up to take down Aldo and remove him from power of the company. After many lawsuits being removed from the business and a divorce, Paolo's pretty much broke. They agreed to a deal where Paolo would cast his 3.3% vote on the Gucci board with Mauricio's, and later on, Mauricio would buy Paolo's shares for $20 million. They also agreed to drop their lawsuits against each other. Somehow, in the grieving of his father, assuming power within the company, lawsuits, and the takedown of his uncle, Mauricio was able to begin a long-term affair with an American married woman by the name of Sherry McLaughlin. They met in 1984 at a sailing competition in Porto Servo, Italy. This affair was not mentioned in the movie, but it lasted almost seven years. After the competition, he was able to find out her contact information for where she lived with her husband in Clearwater, Florida, and he called her almost every day. 
He told her all about the family drama and how unhappy he was in his marriage. I don't know how or why this didn't turn Sherry off, but she should have told him to seek therapy. Mauricio flew her out to Nice, France, and the excuse she gave her husband was that she was seeing him about a job. Towards the end of May of 1985, Mauricio packed a bag and left Patricia and his daughters. He said he was going on a business trip, but later Patricia found out from a friend of Mauricio's that he left them. Mauricio was really feeling himself at this point. He was spending lots of money, he bought a Ferrari, and as you heard, he took on a mistress. Sherry McLaughlin divorced from her husband in 1986. Patricia also found the companionship of someone else after the fall of her marriage, but not in a love interest. She sought out Tina Ariema, a friend of hers that was at her bedside during the birth of her second child. The law came down on the dueling Gucci's in 1986. Aldo was first. He was sentenced to one year and one day in federal prison for failing to pay $7.4 million in personal income taxes. At first, Aldo wasn't worried about getting prison time because he did so much for the community, as he said. And Dominic DeSalle, the company's tax lawyer, had to remind him that the United States is not Italy. Mauricio evaded being arrested in the most ridiculous way possible. Remember how the rest of the family believed that Mauricio forged the documents that claimed his father signed away his shares to him before he died? Well, staff that worked very closely with Rodolfo for years believed so too. Aldo and his sons reported it during the summer, probably around the time Aldo was sentenced. By mid-December, the Italian fiscal police came to Mauricio's home to see about it. Mauricio had a longtime driver who was very loyal and somewhat of a father figure to him that tipped him off to the police's arrival and with quick thinking orchestrated his escape. He drove Mauricio over to his garage where Mauricio then put on his helmet and hopped on his red Kawasaki GPZ, which is a motorcycle, and drove the three hours to the inherited St. Moritz estate in Switzerland. Switzerland didn't have an extradition treaty with Italy, so Mauricio was safe there, but it took some time before he could leave. He was found guilty, but he was acquitted. The Gucci family drama was all over the papers, and the real-life soap opera was not good for business. When Aldo went to prison, he was 81 years old, and after a point, he decided he was too old and tired to be fighting for the company. He sold his shares to InvestCorp, a global manager of alternative investment products for private and institutional clients, in either 1988 or 1989. Mauricio was made chairman of Gucci in 1989, but that didn't last long. He didn't have a background in business, and really the only thing that gave him credence was his last name. Mauricio had the company but screaming and hollering due to his exorbitant spending habits. From 1991 until 1993, the company was in the red. After failing to maintain the success of the business, he sold the rest of his shares to InvestCorp in 1993 for $170 million. After 72 years, the Gucci family was no longer a part of Gucci. Now that Mauricio had no ties to Gucci, you would think Patricia would have no interest in him, right? Wrong. In 1989, Sherry McLaughlin ended her relationship with Mauricio because she wanted to settle down and have a family. After his romance ended with Sherry, he struck up a new romance in 1990, this time with his childhood friend, Paola Franchi. She even attended the wedding of Mauricio and Patricia. Mauricio and Paola moved in together and lived in a luxury apartment in Milan. Things were obviously not looking too good for Patricia. Mauricio did not want a reconciliation at all, but he deposited money into her account every month and spent some time with their children. Patricia started getting really bad headaches in the fall of 1991, and by 1992, she went to see a doctor who diagnosed her with having a large brain tumor. 
This provides some clarity to Mauricio and others because allegedly she had been threatening him and some say he was fearful of his life. The tumor turned out to be benign and Patricia returned her focus to seeking revenge on Mauricio. She sent him menacing messages via hand-delivered cassette tapes and she kept a pretty detailed diary. Their divorce was finalized on November 19, 1994. Paolo divorced from her ex-husband in 1991. There are conflicting stories as to what the next step of Paola's and Mauricio's relationship would be. One story is that a Christmas wedding was planned and the other was that Mauricio never wanted to remarry and instead wanted to draw up a relationship contract. Neither one of those plans happened. On March 27, 1995, Mauricio was shot four times around 8.30 in the morning as he was walking up the steps to his office in Milan. He was shot twice in the back, once in the shoulder, and the final and fatal shot was to his head. The doorman of the office building was also shot twice, but he survived. If you watched Dateline episodes, it's kind of obvious that this was not done by a professional. So who murdered Maurizio? Investigators initially believed it had to do with some sort of connection to Gucci, like a business still gone wrong or something. The truth took some time, but it did come out eventually. Two years later, it was revealed that Patricia had hired a hitman through her friend Pina to kill Maurizio. She was then labeled a black widow by the media. An anonymous tip was received by Criminal Poll, which is the criminal police, in January 1997, and the tipster said they heard a Milan Hotel doorman bragging about their arrangement of the murder. This was not the same doorman that got shot. Criminal Poll put trackers on all the cars of the suspected people involved in the murder, and apparently they weren't moving too smart, so they were all rounded up rather quickly. I couldn't tell if there were two or three people at the scene of the crime. I know that at least the hitman and driver were there. There's not a ton of information out there on them. Patricia was arrested on January 31st, 1997. Her motives were assumed to be resentment and jealousy of the divorce and his serious relationship with Paola. Another motive in my mind is that she didn't want him to have any more children. And I also read that if he remarried, her alimony payments would be reduced by half, which would have been a little under $900,000 a year. The trial either started or was underway by January of 1998. On the stand, Patricia spoke about how she believed she hadn't received enough in the divorce settlement. However, she did receive a pretty nice divorce settlement in my opinion. This divorce settlement included several apartments, large sums of money, and of course the five bigger monthly alimony checks. In the end, on November 8, 1998, all the people involved were found guilty. The assassin received life imprisonment and everyone else received at least 25 years in prison. Patricia was sentenced to 29 years in prison. She got the sentence reduced in 2000 to 26 years, citing her brain tumor. In 2011, she was offered parole through a work release program, but she chose to stay in prison. The quote is, I never worked in my life and I'm certainly not going to start now. I mean, stick to it, I guess. She was released in October 2016 after 18 years in prison. I definitely think the brain tumor has some sort of role in Patricia's decision-making and overall well-being, but at the end of the day, she did what she did. I do think a lot of the blame got placed on Patricia about her egg and Mauricio on to take over the company, but I do think Aldo just let that huge gap in the business and didn't really do that much to secure it and ensure that the pass-off would have been effective. Thank you so much for listening to this long episode of Most Fashionable Crime. I hope you enjoyed it. 
Make sure you watch House of Gucci, watch the House of Gucci YouTube video on the Most Fashionable Crime YouTube channel, and let me know when you all want to hop on another Twitter space. Again, there was so much information about the Gucci business and family. It was a lot to cover, and I hope I was able to relay the big parts of it. I highly recommend reading the book if you want more information on the history of Gucci and the fall of the dynasty. You can read it for free via ebook and listen to the audiobook for free via Hoopla if you have a public library card. I will also link the book in case anyone prefers the feel of a paper book. Be sure to sign up for the newsletter so you don't miss anything. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast, download episodes, and leave a five-star rating if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. On the YouTube channel, I definitely talk more about how I think auto played a huge role in the downfall of the dynasty. All of my sources are linked in the notes. In case you're wondering, this podcast was written, recorded, produced, and edited by me, Taryn. All the music you heard in the episode is from Epidemic Sound.